it's cool that we can have uh, family time like this every week and share the things going on in our lives. Um, you can imagine my shock to find out I was getting surgery this week, um, but also my relief to find out that it wasn't really me this week, so <laughs> dodged a bullet there. <laughs> so I have to give you a hard time for that. <laughs> um, we've, uh, uh, the pastor is like, we've all been accused before of, uh, of being brothers uh, when we go like, to conferences and people just assume that we're related, so uh, you're not the first one, Pauline. <laughs> Um, we're continuing to make our way through First Peter, uh, chapter three. So th- there are a couple of um, kind of difficult passages in particular in First Peter, um, and I happen to get them both just through luck of the draw. So um, this is one of these difficult passages that uh, that we've got to do a little bit of work to make sure that we understand uh, what Peter is trying to say to us. And for several weeks now, we've been talking about. Uh, suffering. The context uh, of First Peter has been uh, suffering. You can see our graphic up here says elect exiles, meaning that uh, uh, for followers of Christ, that we're, we're not, this world is not our final destination. Um, we have in the life to come, uh, the hope of the Christian uh, is that life goes beyond the here and the now, and that we will get to spend eternity with Christ. And so Peter is writing this letter uh, to a group of people reminding them uh, of that truth. And so we've talked about uh, living in uh, a world that is not just, uh, where suffering happens. And, and I think for us, we, there might be a little bit of a disconnect because uh, just because of where we live. We live in America, we, we live in kind of a Western culture. Uh, we don't know suffering for our faith the way that people know suffering for their faith in other parts of the world. Um, you know, some people, Jordan and I were talking about this the other day, is you know, has God blessed us because of where we live? Pr- probably so. I'm thankful to live where I live. I'm thankful that I don't live in another part of the world where I have to worry about, you know, getting my head lopped off for my faith. Um, but, but at the same time, um, when we read a book like First Peter, a letter like First Peter, we maybe have some difficulty relating because we just don't face suffering. The worst suffering that we probably face uh, for our faith is that people might think we're weird. And at the end of the day, that's, that's really not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. And so Peter is writing to a group of Christians, reminding them uh, that in the midst of the suffering, that we have a Savior who also suffered, and He can relate to us because He knows what it is to suffer, and He suffered probably far worse than you and I have suffered. And so when we get to the end of chapter 3, starting we in verses 18 to 22 today, Peter reminds us that Christ also suffered once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. And so he reminds us that Christ also suffered. So to these elect exiles to whom Peter has encouraged in living in a world that has an unjust government, uh, living in a world where you can have an unjust employer, you might have a situation where you have um, an unjust boss, Uh, even living in a situation where there might be injustice in your home from one spouse to the next. Peter reminds us that even though you might be suffering, Christ also suffered. 
Christ suffered an injustice that you and I will never suffer. He says that not only did Christ suffer, but He suffered once for the sins of the righteous, or once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, we've got to back up and dig into a little bit of Old Testament history here for this to make sense to us. Way back in the book of Exodus, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, right? You might be familiar with the Ten Commandments. He gave Moses the Ten Commandments, and this really was God's design for how humans should live with one another. Basically, ten ten rules, if you will, like follow these rules and everything's good. Live this way uh, and everything's good. God's standard of righteousness for how people should live uh, were defined in the Ten Commandments. And if you know much of your Old Testament history at all, you know that it didn't take very long at all for those Ten Commandments to kind of go out the window. Because people are not righteous. God gave a standard for righteousness. Here's what it looks like to live righteously, follow these Ten Commandments. People, us, humanity, were were not righteous, and so we couldn't live with those Ten Commandments. And so do you know what the Israelites did? They took those Ten Commandments, and over time, they kept adding rules to the Ten Commandments because they realized people are rule breakers. We're rebels. And so they had to keep adding rules to these Ten Commandments. Now, you don't do this, and you have to do these things, and you can't do these things. And pretty soon, they had over 600 laws that as a good Israelite that you would be responsible not only to know, but to live by. And again, if you know your Old Testament history, you know that the Israelites, they they couldn't live with 10 commandments, let alone 600, right? Because we're rebellious by nature. And so God's standard of righteousness was here, but we lived down here. And I say we because you, you and I are not all that different, right? Humans from thousands of years ago are not all that different than the humans of today. And so in response to that, God instituted with the nation of Israel this, what we call the sacrificial system. And the way the sacrificial system worked is that when you would break a rule, when you would break a law, depending on what that law was, there was a prescribed animal sacrifice. In other words, blood had to be shed from an animal in order to atone for your rule-breaking, for your rebellion. The Bible calls that sin. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see that the Israelites, they would sin, and then they would sacrifice animals to atone for their sin. And you know what would happen? They would sin more, more sacrifice to atone for their sin. They would sin more and more sacrifice to atone for their sins. And it was this kind of wash, rinse, repeat type of a system. And it doesn't take a scholar to read through the Old Testament to realize that, like, these people can't keep up with their sin. There's not enough animals, like, eventually the world's going to run out of animals to sacrifice if these people keep living the way that they're living, if they keep sinning. But what we see in the Old Testament is this picture very early on that there's one way to atone for sin. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so very early on, we get this picture that sin causes death, our rebellion causes death, and the way to atone for that or the way to wash it away is through blood, through the sacrifice of animals. The other thing that we see very early on in biblical history is that our sin breaks the relationship that we have with God. There was a time in Genesis, in the very beginning of recorded history as we know it, where Creation was in perfect harmony with its creator. 
before sin and rebellion entered the world. We don't know how long that time lasted, but it, but it lasted for a time. And the moment that Adam and Eve, the first humans, rebelled against God, the relationship between humanity and God, between creation and creator, that relationship was broken. It was broken. And it was because of sin and rebellion. And so our sin and our rebellion breaks the relationship that we have with God. The wages of sin, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, is death. And the thing that atones for our sin or washes away our sin is the shedding of blood. And so Peter tells us that Christ also suffered. And how is it that he suffered? He, he came to this earth, we call him the God-man, God in human flesh, right? the creator of all things, stepped into human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, came to his own creation, and the Bible tells us that that creation rejected him. And so Jesus suffered at the hands of his own creation, being rejected by those that he created. And if that's not bad enough, Jesus, while he was here on this earth, the Bible tells us, lived a perfect life. He lived a life that you and I are incapable of. He lived a life that met God's righteous standard that were outlined in those Ten Commandments. God lived a perfect life, 100% righteous. And he died a criminal's death, convicted, unjustly, unfairly. The perfect person who had no sin in him whatsoever was condemned as a sinner. And so he suffered injustice, but it says that that suffering, what Peter's telling us, was not meaningless. Sometimes we can think of our own suffering in life and wonder if there's any meaning to our difficulties, right? We, we, we've all questioned our difficulties. What's, what's the purpose? Maybe we've asked the question, how, how can a good God, how can a loving God allow bad things to happen? And we question if there's any purpose or meaning behind our own suffering. The suffering that Jesus endured had meaning. The suffering that Jesus endured was that, that he suffered what you and I ought to suffer. He suffered the injustice that didn't rightfully belong to him, that did rightfully belong to us. He suffered that injustice. The perfect man was convicted as someone who was not perfect. You and I are not perfect, right? He, he was convicted for not living a perfect life even though he did. He was righteous, and he suffered for unrighteousness that he was unjustly convicted of. What, why am I saying all of this? What, what, what Peter is reminding of us here is, is, a, is a truth that runs throughout the narrative of Scripture. Humanity is unrighteous. Christ is righteous. And the only way for you and I to attain righteousness is through Christ because of his suffering, because of his unjust suffering. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 to 7, with reference to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, says this. says that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, speaking to his Father, but a body you have prepared for me, 
In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So the writer of Hebrews calling our attention to this kind of meta-narrative of Scripture that God created, humanity rebelled, Christ came to redeem. And if that's true, that begs a response from every one of us. If that's true, if God created, humanity rebelled, and Christ came to redeem, we can't be indifferent to that truth. It begs a response. And so again, we see in the Old Testament a picture of God's righteousness. We see a picture of the unrighteousness of humanity. We see this kind of never-ending shedding of blood to atone for sin. Well, never-ending, that is, apart from divine intervention, which is a truth that Peter is reminding us of. That's what the writer of Hebrews is reminding us of, as he quoted in that passage I just read from the 40th Psalm. They're reminding us that God has a plan to remedy what you and I are incapable of remedying. It's important that we understand that. It's important that we understand our unrighteous standing before God because of our rebellion and that we're powerless to fix it. We're utterly powerless to do anything about it. So Christ suffered, and if that was the end, if Christ just suffered, right, it's a tragic story. If Jesus was the perfect man, he came and he lived a life that, that fully submitted to the will of his Father, perfectly righteous, no sin in him whatsoever. He died an unjust death. That's a tragic story. But thankfully, the Bible is not a tragedy. This isn't a Shakespearean tragedy because that's not the ending of the story. He suffered for a purpose. He suffered for your sins and for my sins, taking on the sin of every one in the entire world upon himself. And suffering, not only at the hands of his own creation, but suffering the just wrath of the Father against unrighteousness. And even that, if that were the end of the story, this would still be kind of a tragedy, but it's not the end of the story. The meaning to Christ's suffering, Peter tells us, he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God that he might repair the relationship that we broke, that he might take our sin, our rebellion, our unrighteousness that broke the relationship with a holy father, a holy creator, and that through Jesus, he might bring us to God. The suffering of Christ has a meaning. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I can become the righteousness of God so that we could attain something that we couldn't attain apart from Christ. We can't become the righteousness of God apart from Christ, the Bible tells us. And so Jesus, the Bible says, is the mediator, the one mediator between God and men is the man Christ Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. That's what makes the life of Jesus not tragic at all. It's not a tragedy that he suffered injustice. It's not a tragedy that he took on the sin of all humanity and suffered the just wrath of the Father because that suffering is the very thing that allows you and I 
to enter back into right relationship with our creator as a sinful, rebellious creation. What an incredible truth that is. Peter goes on to say that he was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. The suffering that Jesus experienced ultimately led to his death. But we know, fortunately, that Jesus conquered death, he defeated sin, and he made a way for the broken relationship between the creator and creation to be restored. God did for us in Christ what you and I could not do, and even if we could, we wouldn't. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And this short sentence, 1 Peter 3.18, is packed an immense gospel truth that the Apostle Peter reminds us of. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, and he did so by being put to death in the flesh, but was made alive in the Spirit. This is the work of God, not the work of you, not the work of me, not the work of, of anybody, but the work of God. God doing for us in Christ what we could and would never do for ourselves. And so that one verse, if I could summarize it, I would summarize it as saying that our salvation has been secured because of what Christ has done, salvation secured. As we move into verse 19, we're going to look at salvation proclaimed. And this is where the passage gets a little bit dicey. This is where it becomes difficult to understand. So Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, this is where we pause and say, what in the world is Peter trying to say here? <laughs> what, what is he trying to say? We're told before we get to this point that Christ suffered, that Christ died, that Christ was made alive, so he defeated sin, he conquered death. And then Peter says that after being made alive in the Spirit, that it was in that Spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits who were in prison. And so we, we immediately have some questions. What, what did Jesus proclaim? Who are these spirits? And what is the prison that they're in? And so there's a lot of kind of mixed reviews on this, if you will. Um, you can read a lot of different theologians, a lot of different commentators, and there's a lot of different ideas about what this is. Our options for who are these spirits, so the New Testament almost exclusively uses the term spirit to refer to non-human beings, right? You might look at somebody and say, oh, that person is a beautiful soul, right? But when the New Testament talks about spirits in terms of, of people, it's almost exclusively referring not to human beings. And so we're kind of left with the options of these being angelic spirits who are fallen, right? There's a precedent for that in the Bible. Um, we have an option of these being the departed spirits of those who, who died as believers, uh, and then the departed spirits of those who died as unbelievers or, or the ungodly. We're not going to solve this today. I'll, I'll just tell you that right now. So I hope that doesn't disappoint anybody. I'm going to give you some of the options of what people think um, and, and you can figure out where you land for yourself. 
But whoever these spirits are, we're told that they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah when the ark was being prepared. So automatically, we go back to Genesis chapter 6, where we have this account of Noah building an ark and God bringing a flood. Maybe you know that story. The Bible tells us that the sinfulness of humanity by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, so six chapters into the first book of the Bible, six chapters into recorded history as we know it, the sinfulness of humanity was so bad that the Bible tells us that God was sorrowful that He created humanity. And not sorrowful in the sense that He regretted that He, that he created humanity, but He was heartbroken over the sin of humanity. Sin had, had gotten to a point culturally or in a societal sense where we're told that God was heartbroken over the sins of humanity. And one of the characteristics of God that we know from the Bible is that He's just. He's holy, He's perfect, He's righteous. And because those things are true of God, then sin cannot go unpunished. Sin cannot go unjudged by a holy, just, righteous, perfect God. And so he told Noah, I want you to build a boat. We call it the ark, a big, really big boat, giant boat. He tells Noah that he's going to flood the earth. And so Noah, in obedience to God, embarks on this however long journey of building a boat. And people around him ridiculed him for building a boat. It's like, what are you doing, you crazy old man? And he built a boat, built this giant boat. And sure enough, as God said, one day it started to rain, and it rained more and more and more and more. And over the course of 40 days, it rained so much that the entire earth was flooded, and the only people that survived the flood were Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. The people of Noah's day looked at him as a crazy old man, and they didn't pay attention to his message. They didn't pay attention to his message that God was going to flood the earth. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen, there, there's a movie about Noah. I think Russell Crowe plays Noah. It's maybe 10 or 15 years old. Not a great movie. I don't, I'm not necessarily recommending the movie. But um, there's a scene in that movie that I've, just uh, is sobering to me. And it's after Noah had built the boat. And he's inside the boat and it's dark, right? There's no electricity, right? This, this is way back when. It's dark inside the boat, and it's raining, and the flood waters are rising, and the boat is floating in the water, and you see Noah sitting on the ground, almost a little bit curled up, and you hear on the outside of the boat people screaming who are being carried away by the flood waters. They're pounding on the boat, let us in, let us in. That, that's not the Sunday school story that I was taught growing up in the church. Right? We even had a cute little kid song about Noah building the, the arky, arky out of gopher, barky, barky, kind of remember how the song goes. The scene in this movie, like this is one of the things I think that the movie got right, that, that it was sobering to hear the screams of the people who were perishing in the water, who weren't allowed, who, who weren't able to be on the ark because ultimately they rejected Noah, but really they rejected God. And so Peter says that Jesus somehow went and preached to these spirits who formerly in the days of Noah didn't listen. 
And so here, here are some options about what this could be. There's a whole lot of options. I'm going to give you five options, Th- three of which I don't think are good, two of which are possible. So the first option is that Jesus went to hell and he preached the gospel to sinners, offering them another chance to repent. There's, there's many theologians that believe this to be true. But I don't think this is biblically sound because the Bible teaches us that it's appointed to a person to die once. And before that time comes, there's the opportunity to repent of sin. It, it doesn't seem biblical that, to say that Jesus went to hell and preached the gospel to people who didn't repent in the first life to give them a chance to repent in the afterlife. That, that just doesn't, I don't think that holds water. The second popular option is that Jesus went to a, a purgatory of sorts to liberate Old Testament believers who were waiting for him. I don't think this is real biblically sound either because the Bible tells us that to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. Right? And so if we believe that to be true, then the Bible would say that the moment that we come to faith, if whenever we die after that, that we're, we're present with Christ if we're not present here on this earth. A third option would be that Jesus went and proclaimed his victory to the evil angels mentioned in Genesis chapter 6. So before we get to the flood account in Genesis 6, it talks about the sons of God who married the daughters of men. And that's, again, a confusing passage that I don't know that we quite fully understand, but a possible interpretation of that is that angelic beings came to this earth and married human women, right? And so in that belief, then, you could look at this Peter passage and say that Jesus went and proclaimed victory to these evil angels who are mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, and that he did so, um, that he did so as a, as a proclamation of victory, not necessarily as an opportunity for them to repent and come to faith, but proclaiming his victory over sin and death. Now, that's not the only way to interpret Genesis chapter 6, but that's another conversation for another day, but that's a possible interpretation. A fourth option would be that the Spirit of Jesus preached through Noah to the disobedient people of Noah's day. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that in the beginning was God. I'm sorry, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and that everything that was created was created through Him. And so we know that Jesus, like the Father and the Spirit, is eternal and participated in creation. And and so Jesus isn't bound by time and space like you and I may be bound by time and space. And so a fourth option would be that the Spirit of Jesus preached through Noah to the people of His day. So Noah's proclamation of His day of God's coming judgment really was Jesus speaking through Noah. And in that interpretation, it's believed that those people, people of Noah's day, are in this sort of of a purgatory, a prison-type purgatory, awaiting their final judgment. And what Peter might be saying here is that Jesus went and proclaimed to them, not a second chance, but that He went and proclaimed to Him His victory over sin and death and the sealing of their fate for their disobedience to Noah's proclamation of God's coming judgment. That, that seems like a plausible interpretation. A fifth option, Peter says 
that Jesus suffered, that he died, and that he was made alive, and so there's kind of this order to it. And after that, if, if we just look at the kind of this plain reading of the order of things, that after Jesus suffered, after he died, after he was made alive, that he then proclaimed to the spirits. This preaching in the plain reading would have taken place after his resurrection to the people of his day who similar, similarly to the people of Noah's day rejected the message. So those are kind of five what I would call popular uh, interpretations of this passage. You can decide for yourself where you land. I, personally, I would think kind of the last two are probably the more plausible of the three, but, but here's the bigger point. Even though we're not going to crack this nut today of what actually happened here, what we do know to be true, whatever the right interpretation is, one thing is certain is that Jesus won victory at the cross. Jesus conquered death at the cross. Jesus defeated sin at the cross. And part of the message of the gospel is that Jesus has secured victory. And so I would, if I were to give kind of a, um, a title to this particular point would be salvation proclaimed. So verse 18, we would say that salvation is secured because of what Christ has done. Verses 19 and 20, we would say that salvation is proclaimed. So wherever Jesus went, whoever the spirits are, wherever the prison is, whether it was bound by time or space or not, that Jesus proclaimed his victory over sin and death and his victory over the forces of evil. And that's an encouraging thing to know. That's one thing we can know for sure. Then as we move into verse 21, I would call this salvation illustrated. So he talks about Noah, the eight persons that were brought safely through the water. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, in other words, this illustration of Noah, baptism corresponds to this, it now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this is another, like we have to stop for a second and say, okay, what is, what is Noah saying here? We're not the kind of church that believes that baptism saves anybody, right? Baptism does not save you. There are some churches, some denominations that would advocate for that. We, we, don't, we do not believe that to be true. Baptism is a sacrament given to the church. It's important. But baptism doesn't save you or me. And so Peter is saying that baptism corresponds to this picture of Noah and the flood. And he says that now saves you. So what is it that he's saying? Well, he gives us a little bit of a clue. He says, not as a removal of dirt. In other words, your baptism is not going to cleanse you from your unrighteousness. We can look at baptism in a couple of different ways, or we tend to look at baptism in a couple of different ways. One way we tend to look at baptism is that it's something that we do for God. I would say that that's a bit of an erroneous way to look at baptism. Baptism is us being reminded of and being shown a picture of what God has done for us, Christ for us. Now, there is something that, that you and I do in baptism, right? But let's not make the mistake to say this is my act that I'm doing for God, right? That's not a, not a good view of baptism. Peter is saying that baptism doesn't cleanse, it doesn't it doesn't make you clean. It's not the baptism that makes you clean. It's the blood of Christ that makes you and I clean. 
So in and of itself, baptism doesn't really do anything for anybody in and of itself, the physical act of, of dunking somebody, immersing somebody in water. If there was something that you and I could do for God that would matter, there would be no need for Christ. Think about that. There's something you and I could do for God that ultimately would matter in terms of our salvation, in terms of our righteousness, we would have no need for Christ. If it were possible, even a little bit possible, for somebody to do something for God that would result in them being declared righteous. So baptism, we have to understand that it's Christ for us. Peter says that this baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. In other words, our appeal to God is not based on our own merit. My appeal to God isn't to say, God, look at me, I'm a good guy, especially compared to this person over here. That's not how we appeal to God. Our appeal to God is not based on what we have done, not what we could do, not what we should do, not what we will do. The appeal to God that gives us a clean conscience is through the resurrection of Jesus. Our appeal to God is to say, look at me, this wretched sinner, but my hope and my trust and my faith and my belief is in Christ and what He's done for me that I could and would never do for myself. And God then looks at the believer through the lens of Christ. God looks at the believer as if Christ's righteousness we're our righteousness. We can't do that. This is Christ for us. So Peter's making a correlation between this idea of baptism, Christ being for us, and he's making this correlation to the flood of Noah's day, God's judgment on a sinful humanity. What's the correlation, we might ask? Have you ever thought about this with respect to the flood of Noah's day, that the same water that saved Noah and his family is the same water that brought judgment on all of humanity, save for those eight people? The same water that, that allowed eight people to be carried to a salvation of sorts is the same water that brought judgment and wrath upon the entirety of humanity, save for those eight people that were in the boat. It's the same water. To many, it represented judgment. To a few, it represented salvation. For those who rejected the message of God, proclaimed through Noah in his day, to those who rejected that message, that water brought death, and it didn't bring new life in place of the death. It just brought death and judgment. Romans 3 tells us, again, that the wages of sin are death. But that same water for those who did not reject the message, for those who heeded the message of God preached through Noah, Noah and his family, this water brought salvation to them. So not only does Romans 3 tell us that the wages of sin is death, but it says that the gift of God is what? Eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is life and life eternal. Noah's family, they were saved because they believed God. 
the rest of humanity was rightfully judged, rightfully suffered under the wrath of God because they didn't believe. And as we think about baptism, again, it's not what I do for God or what you do for God, but it's reminding us of what Christ has done for us. That baptism, as we're immersed into the water, it's a representation of death. And for the Christian, it's a representation of, of us dying to sin. And as we come up out of the water, it's a picture of being resurrected to a new life. The people in Noah's day who were judged, they, they didn't have that resurrection. They didn't have that experience of, of new life. Baptism shows us that the old life has passed away and that the new life has come. And all of that is the work of Christ in us. So again, Peter is reminding us here of the truth of the gospel. And he gives us this illustration of salvation. Verse 22, he finishes it out with salvation assured. He started this section reminding us that Jesus suffered, that he died, that he was raised to life. And he's closing this section by reminding us that after all those things happen, that Jesus has gone into heaven, he's at the right hand of God, the angels, the authorities, and the powers are all subject to him. So again, whatever some of the difficult things in this passage are for us to figure out exactly what's what, what's true beyond the shadow of any doubt is that Christ is for us. What's true beyond the shadow of any doubt is that God has done for us in Christ things that we could and would never do for ourselves. And the reason that, that I say that verse 22 is salvation assured is that, that if Jesus did all these things, if he lived, if he suffered, if he died, even if he resurrected and just went back to normal human life, that would not be a good ending to the story. The things that, that, that makes it so we can sleep at night and that we can rest in the fact that these things are true is that because Jesus is now in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, and the angels and the authorities and the powers are subject to Him. He rules everything. If this story ends in any other way besides Him ruling everything, then this story isn't all that beneficial for us. But it ends with Jesus ruling everything. Everything is subject to Him. Colossians tells us that, that He is the creator of all things, that everything is for Him, everything is by Him, everything is through Him, everything is to Him. He holds everything together in the entirety of the cosmos. In His sovereignty, there's nothing anywhere that's not ordered or controlled by Him. Romans 8.31 sums this idea up nicely. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen Amen. and amen. This is the truth that Peter is driving at in the midst of maybe some difficult things to interpret. One commentator says that while this text is difficult to interpret or decipher, Peter's message is not difficult. It's better to suffer for doing good rather than to do evil because God will vindicate those who endure righteous suffering, just as he vindicated his beloved son through suffering. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one, because even the demonic realm is under Jesus' authority. In the midst of suffering, we can take heart that God is at work to sustain us in our suffering and to bring us through that suffering to himself, to the vindication and the glory that Christ suffered in order to offer us. What an amazing truth that is. So don't lose sight of that truth trying to maybe make a little more sense of these difficult passages. Let's look at what we can plainly know that Christ is for us that our salvation is secured, that our salvation has been proclaimed, that our salvation has been illustrated in in the idea of baptism, and our salvation is assured in the fact that Christ is seated at the right hand of God and everything is subject to him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for today. Thankful that you love us. Thankful that you have done for us things which we could and would never do for ourselves. God, we're thankful that in our sinfulness, in our rebellion, in our unrighteousness, that you love us enough that you've made a way to restore the broken relationship between creator and creation. And I would pray for all of us today that you would strengthen our faith as a result of being reminded of this truth, that you might give faith where it doesn't exist to those who have yet to believe, and that we would be encouraged in the fact that you love us so much that you went to the length of giving your one and only son so that if we might believe in you, that we would inherit eternal life. We're thankful for it and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.